0: Welcome to the Ackerman Angle, your resource for what you need to know about wage and hour compliance. I'm Damian Delaney, and I'm co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner with the firm based in Los Angeles.
1: And I'm Jeff Kimmel, co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner based in the firm's New York office.
0: Today, we're discussing a topic that's always of interest, arbitration. Employers love arbitration because of its usually streamlined proceedings and that it replaces a jury with a professional, judge or attorney, more likely to come to a reliable decision. Those things are true, but arbitration is not a panacea either. It's expensive. Decisions generally cannot be appealed and arbitrators like King Solomon are known to like to split babies.
1: Right, Damien, so arbitration is a procedure in which a dispute is submitted by agreement of the parties to one or more arbitrators who, as you noted, can be a professional judge, an attorney, can be some other sort of professional uh, who make a binding decision on the dispute. In choosing arbitration, the parties opt for a private dispute resolution procedure instead of going to court. Arbitration and arbitration agreements can provide unique benefits to employers, however, that, that make them an important tool in an employer's risk management toolbox. Arbitration can be helpful to minimize exposure for an employer. This is especially true in wage and hour, where arbitration can be used to neutralize one of the plaintiff's bar's most powerful weapons, which is the class action.
0: And that's where we're going to start today, Jeff. We're first going to talk about what the U.S. Supreme Court has done with arbitration agreements over the past several years, concluding with what the action in the court has been um, in the past year typically aimed at the class action waiver from there we're going to talk about what's going on in Congress and in some of the states in terms of trying to limit employers ability to use mandatory arbitration agreements in employment and then finally we're going to have a conversation about some of the pros and cons that employers should keep in mind in determining whether to implement a mandatory arbitration program. Jeff, when we think of arbitration agreements and wage and hour cases, we often think of them as a way to eliminate class action risk,
1: right? Well, that's right. Um, that's a big benefit for employers. And one of the main reasons that a lot of employers use arbitration agreements uh, is to, to limit the ability of plaintiffs to, uh, to pursue their claims as a class or as a collective action. Um, for more than 10 years now, many employers have included language in arbitration agreements stating that employees can only have their claims heard individually in arbitration, but they can't ask to have the claims uh, of other employees joined with theirs in any way, particularly as class or collective actions. And and by the way, that also goes for um, uh, multi-plaintiff actions as well. So not only can they not bring the claim as a class or collective action, under a lot of these agreements, they can't bring them as a multi-plaintiff action, meaning just with two or three or four other Co-workers that they look to uh, to assert their claim jointly with. But
0: at any rate, um, in many respects, now the the Supreme Court has created um, you know clear sailing for class action waivers, uh, and in some respects it operates oftentimes like a, a cheat code for employers, if you will. Um, the the presence of a class action waiver, especially outside of California, leaving Paga to the to the side for a moment. Um, it, it it blunts uh, the employee's ability to bring a class or collective action and really forces them into a unilateral uh, posture with uh, with the employer. Oftentimes that's going to result in a reduction of wage claims because ind- individually uh, the potential return on investment for a plaintiff's lawyer is quite low, particularly in arbitration where they may be procedural limitations or cost-sharing provisions that make it even more difficult for plaintiff's lawyers to apply pressure to employers and to try to um, increase their potential end-of-the-day um, fee from bringing these types of claims.
1: Yeah, and, and just to, to jump in there for a second, everything you just said is, is of course, exact is exactly right. The point being that just because an individual employee has to pursue their rights in arbitration, Does not mean that that employee is going to get less, right? That that claimant is going to get less than they would have in a class action. It means the plaintiff's lawyers are probably going to make less money, right, in that case. But I've seen plenty of individual arbitration claims where the individual got a lot more in that arbitration settlement or even potentially award than they would have had had it been brought as a class in either a class settlement or a class award. Um, So you know this. the the idea pushed by some employee advocates or the plaintiffs' bar that arbitration is this horrible thing that limits the right of employees to recover right unemployment claims, it's not actually the case. I mean, it can be the case. Sure, they could make, they could do worse better in court or you know better in arbitration. It really depends on the claim. But it's not you know sort of a per se rule that an employee is going to do worse in arbitration. It's really the plaintiffs plaintiff's attorneys that are not going to have the same opportunity to get a big class action fee awarded to them, right?
0: There is a, a response that a lot of plaintiff's lawyers have brought to the class action waiver that is kind of collective activity when you think about it. And that is organizing large numbers of individual em- employees to file arbitration claims on moss so that an employer with a class action waiver may be confronted with three four five hundred arbitrations on similar claims filed at the same time these are often used as a negotiating tool because the plaintiff's really wants a class action settlement in court and they right. they find this as a as a way to pressure employers to that because Regardless of the merits of these claims, having to bear the cost of 500 arbitrations proceeding and having to pay the arbitration fees and all the administrative costs of 500 actions is itself a massive, can be a massive amount yeah, of money. And,
1: and just to get really into the weeds, which maybe we, we don't need to do, but if, if a lot of these arbitration agreements provide for the AAA, the American Arbitration Association, to be the forum which they arbitrate, the employment rules under the AAA require that the employer for each claim that's filed, pay $1,900 for file, filing fee where the plaintiff's attorney's or the plaintiff's pay, pay $300. So like you said, if, you're, if you have the threat of a plaintiff's attorney filing 50, 50 different arbitrations, you know, you're going to be looking at a big nut as the employer if that's the form that you've agreed to arbitrate it.
0: And of course, in California, um, the, I would, it goes a step further where the employer, right. beyond that, that $300 filing fee, the employer has to pay the entire cost of the arbitration, which in some cases can be more than $100,000. So the, the right. financial incentive for w- when, that mass, when those mass arbitrations take place, the financial incentive to simply settle them as a class action becomes quite significant. The problem is, um, or the reason why it's maybe not as, as a big a threat to employers right now, is there are very few plaintiff's for, firms that have the wherewithal to actually do that. Uh, so that's really um, a risk that, that, that is a, attached to class action waivers, but it maybe feels a little bit attenuated because it doesn't happen all that often.
1: Although I have to say I've seen it.
0: <laughs> oh, I've seen it too. I've seen it yeah. too. You know, you yep. see it. You, yep. you you do see them, and employers have different um, different responses to them. I definitely was involved with one with a, a large corporation that had the resource, and they said, "Bring it, let's go." And um, we got you know a lot of associates got trial experience <laughs> from from that. But but again, I, th- I think it's still a, a rare animal at the moment. We see we may see more of that on the horizon.
1: Right. Right. So also on the arbitration map or on the horizon is the, uh, the recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Morgan versus Sundance case. Um, and that case, the, the court ruled that the Federal Arbitration Act's policy, quote, favoring arbitration uh, does not permit the courts to condition a waiver of the right to arbitrate on a showing of prejudice to the opposing party. So the court considered the text of the FAA, which makes clear that courts are not to create arbitration-specific procedural rules just based on that policy favoring arbitration. Arbitration agreements and and the rules surrounding it can't, you know, they can't put their finger on the scale one way or the other with respect to arbitration. They can't make decisions that create a different test for an arbitration agreement that's different from how any other contract would be viewed. So the court interpreted um, that language within the FAA as a command to apply the usual federal procedure rules, including any rules relating to motion's timeliness. Um, or put conversely, it's a bar on using custom-made rules to tilt the playing field in favor or against arbitration. Um, so based on that understanding, the court held that prejudice is not required a finding that a party, um, by litigating in court too long, waived its right to stay litigation or compel arbitration under the FAA. Um, So the Supreme Court addressed this issue and basically said, no, prejudice is something that's court created for arbitration agreements only. And we're taking that out of the equation. And now the issue of whether a party waived the right to arbitrate, it's just gonna be looked at under standard contract principles.
0: It's interesting to, to see that standard contract principle um, jurisprudence working as a two-way ratchet. Because normally that's, that's used to enforce, if not expand or define how expansive arbitration rights are. And right. here instead, you know, we said like a waiver in an arbitration agreement is just like a waiver of of a right under any contract and and um you know a waiver of uh of a right under a contract does not require me to show that i was damaged right (laughs) and so and, and that's that's interesting um the takeaway, to me seems very clear that if you have an arbitration agreement, there is n- really no choice other than try to try to exercise that right at the at, at the earliest possible opportunity. Would you agree with that?:
1: I Totally agree. Uh, you know, in many cases, as you know, start with actually a claim letter, right? They're not just immediately filed in court. A lot of times the employer will get a letter from the plaintiff's attorney saying, I represent Joe Smith, right? And we have these claims against the company, and um, you know, if you don't come to the table and we don't get a resolution of this thing, we're gonna file in court. Um, when I have a client who's got arbitration agreements, part of my very initial response to, to that plaintiff's counsel is gonna be whatever we wanna argue subtly, but also, by the way, we have an arbitration agreement here. Here's a copy of it. You can't bring this case in court. And if you do, we're going to immediately move to compel arbitration. Um, and then if they do file, we immediately compel arbitration.
0: Yeah. Now, that's a, that's an interesting... Um an interesting take on things and 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 I agree with that strategy But I'm thinking about that that scenario that you, you that you've described and and I certainly think it I, I I've seen lawyer or I've seen letters from lawyers that oftentimes say if you don't tell me about an arbitration agreement Within or if you don't show me the arbitration agreement within 30 days, then we're going to treat that as if it's a waiver and uh, of course, my take on that has always been, okay, that's an anticipatory breach. <laughs> you know, it, and, and I haven't actually waived arbitration until I act in, until I engage in litigation conduct contrary to the right to my rights under the arbitration agreement. After Morgan, do you think that's, that's still the law?
1: Yeah, I don't think that Morgan has changed that. I mean the, the plaintiff's attorney or the plaintiff is not the judge. Right. The, the plaintiff's attorney can't make the rule as to what constitutes waiver and tell you that you waived if you haven't done something with a certain period of time. In my view, um, I don't think that changes under, under, the sun, under Morgan v Sundance. I think it's still a question of whether the party seeking to arbitrate has previously engaged substantively in, in, you know, in the litigation process.
0: Of course, we have all um, manner of questions that we don't have time to discuss on our podcast about what type of conduct and litigation rises to the level of waiver. And I think that's varies widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, But but perhaps that's a conversation for (laughs) for another day, Jeff. I think it certainly varies from case to case.
1: I I think it does. Uh, But again, I think the you know, the golden rule here is or the rule of thumb uh, is if you if you want to take take a claim to arbitration um make make that motion make that position clear from the very beginning so damien as we discussed it is fairly settled now on the wage and hour front that arbitration agreements are enforceable um and you know they can be used to to compel wage and hour claims into into arbitration, and they can be used to prohibit class and collective actions. Um, While the Supreme Court's decisions have generally been favorable to arbitration rights, Congress and state legislatures have tried limiting the employment arbitration agreements um, in a number of important instances. Although it doesn't necessarily affect wage and hour litigation directly, early this year, Congress did amend the FAA to make arbitration agreements largely unenforceable in claims alleging sexual harassment or sexual assault. And this is an important reminder that ultimately the enforceability of employment arbitration agreements is up to Congress. Congress has the power to eliminate class action waivers or employment arbitration altogether. Um, This law that I just mentioned became effective on March 3rd of this year and it prohibits an employer from compelling arbitration of sexual harassment claims that arise after March 3rd. In other words, the conduct complained of had to occur after the effective date of the law, March 3rd, for the law to apply. But if such a claim is made, even though you have an existing arbitration agreement, you as the employer can't compel that sexual harassment claim to be arbitrated.
0: Of course, Jeff, employers always have to keep an eye on what's happening in Congress. With the FAA because Congress ultimately has the the ultimate decision on, uh, on on whether employment arbitration agreements are going to be enforceable at all and that is something that could shift with the political winds um, consider the fact that around the same time as the uh the limitation on sexual harassment claims um that you were just discussing um was passed the house actually passed a bill, H.R. 963, that outright banned all pre-dispute employment arbitration agreements. That bill ended up stalled in the Senate. And because of the politics of the Senate, we can expect for now that it won't go anywhere. But there's always a possibility that, again, shifting political winds in Washington could ultimately make that a reality where there are no... Uh, pre-dispute employment arbitration agreements under the FAA, and certainly the FAA has, in the past, um, been uh, used to carve out certain types of arbitration claims in employment. For example, there is a long-standing um, carve-out of of employment in, in arbitration agreements in transportation, and that right. um, that carve-out was also. Um, reinforced by a decision in uh, the Supreme Court this past term uh, called
1: Saxon v. Southwest Airlines. That's right, Damien. Um, And the state laws, disfavoring arbitration agreements uh, generally are preempted by the FAA and ultimately get struck down in the courts, but that hasn't at all stopped the states from trying. That's been particularly true in your state, most recently in 2019, where California passed AB51. That actually makes it a crime to require employers to condition an employment-related benefit on entering into an arbitration agreement?
0: Well, there is a, a misdemeanor uh, provision in AB 51. Um, I don't know that um, we're too concerned about about uh, any employers ending up in handcuffs over arbitration yet. Um, but the law does pose a threat for some of the the civil penalties that that could come along with uh, with arb- arbitration agreements in, employ- in employment. But AB fifty one also leaves a, a big question mark as to what it's doing and what it's not doing, and what that means for for employers. Um, the history behind the law is that California has been trying to ban employment arbitration for decades. And uh, every time it is tried in the past, those laws have either been affirmatively struck down in the courts, or more recently, uh, there were a series of laws um, that were sent to former Governor Jerry Brown, a Democrat, who vetoed those laws and said specifically in his veto statement, that he believed those laws would be uh, preempted by the FAA and doomed uh, to a court challenge. Um, AB 51 tracks some of those prior um, statutes, but um, Governor, current Governor Gavin Newsom was much more friendly to uh, the notion and signed the laws. Mm-hmm. AB 51 tries to get around the FAA in a creative way, which is it does not actually invalidate an arbitration agreement. In fact, it says on its terms that any it has no effect on the enforceability of any contract under the FAA. But what it does do is it makes it illegal for the employer to present an arbitration agreement to an employee and condition either employment itself or an employment-related benefit on entering into an arbitration agreement.
1: So, I mean, isn't that really California being too cute by half? I mean, does that law stand a chance in the Supreme Court? Um, Because while they are, you know, semantically saying it doesn't invalidate an agreement, they are making it illegal to present that agreement to the employee, which obviously has the same effect or even maybe, you know, even more of a deterrent effect of, of having an arbitration agreement with an employee. I mean, and it certainly... It's certainly targeting arbitration agreements, which is what the Supreme Court has said repeatedly you can't do, right?
0: Well, I, I, I think that um, Ninth Circuit Judge Sandra Acuda, who was the dissenting vote in a case called U.S. Chamber uh, of Commerce versus Bonta, which addressed AB 51, um, Judge Acuta certainly thought that California was being too cute by half and, and in her dissent referred to AB 51 as a gimmick to sidestep any existing Supreme Court precedents. Um, Judge Acuta noted, as you pointed out, Jeff, that we're not banning the arbitration agreement, but we're making it impossible to enter one by banning the action of making the offer and that that fit into um, the Supreme Court's um the supreme Court's skepticism toward laws that quote covertly accomplish the same objective (laughs) so right now um ab ab 51 is going to survive or is going to have to survive another um another look by the ninth circuit the bonta case which lifted a lower court stay on um enforcement of ab 51 um, has been accepted for en banc review in the Ninth Circuit, and that will that that's that's on the horizon if the en Ninth nine circuit um, affirms the, the panel decision, then it seems likely that, uh, that the case will end up at the Supreme court. And, and it remains to be seen what will happen there. But I think if we look at the, the course of jurisprudence over the years and, and most recently um, the decision in Sundance, I think the court is very likely to see through um, what AB 51 does. And certainly Judge Akuta's dissent provides the roadmap for that.
1: Yeah, I'd be uh, curious to see how the Supreme Court reacts to a challenge of that, that law because, you know, it, it just, I totally agree with Judge Okuda and I think, it's, I think it's not even trying to covertly accomplish something. They're just clearly trying to accomplish something, but they're just trying to do it and run around.
0: Jeff, I think states, when they try to do this, whether they're doing it in the courts or whether they're doing it in the legislature, I think they have more luck... In trying to impose procedural standards on arbitration, than in terms of then by trying to attack arbitration with with bans, either total or partial bans. Um, California has long required employers to bear the total cost of arbitration, and they've actually amped up that requirement um, to essentially require our employers to make the payments on time. <laughs> they define the failure to make um, payment on time as a default under the terms of the agreement. Now, there may be new arguments for employers out of out of Morgan v. Sundance. And I think it's an interesting thing to take a look at and consider as to whether even these types of, of procedural impositions on employers, where essentially the, the state Defines terms that the parties may not have agreed to and to in in their own arbitration agreement. Whether those types of provisions um, have been preempted, I don't think those arguments have gotten court review yet. Uh, but but certainly something for uh, employers to consider um, when they are operating under these types of uh, of, of procedural bounds. But for the time. Um, it appears that the states are getting away with, at least California is, and 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 perhaps um, New York to some degree as well, with imposing these types, sorts of minimum stand, procedural standards on arbitration.
1: Well, I agree; they're they're all trying. I will say that in New York, you know, the the law we just discussed, CPLR seventy five fifteen, has never really been enforced, so they don't seem to have gotten away with limiting, you know, making those limitations in that case. Um, but, um, but, yeah, there there seems to be a constant effort at the state level um, to to limit arbitration agreements one way or the other, in the, particularly in the employment context. Which I, I think brings us to sort of the next topic, which is what are the pros and cons of arbitration agreements, right? I mean, do you know, is are they better for employers? Are they better for employees? Do 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 employers want to have arbitration agreements in effect with their employees, right?
0: Right. Well I think there's a lot of a lot for employers to to think about and, and, and consider in terms of, of whether to um, whether to adopt an arbitration program and what that arbitration agreement should look like um, when it's prepared. I'll say at the outset, Jeff, I think this is absolutely an area where um, clients need to partner with outside um, employment counsel, especially experienced employment litigation counsel, who can um, provide some perspective on not only The big picture, pro and con of whether you want to do arbitration, but also things as small as kind of what do we want the arbitration forum to be? Um, What does the law require us to provide in terms of the procedures of arbitration and what should those procedures be. And certainly um, I have my own opinions on that that are based in experience having handled uh, both wage and hour and um, other types of employment cases in arbitration.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's not always the best option for employers, but a lot of times it can be. And it really depends on, you know, the employers the, the industry the employers in the likelihood of for instance class action lawsuits collective actions being filed against them or not um, and yeah, to some degree i think that some employers also look at it as a public relations thing right do they want to get called out by you know progressives uh you know liberals whatever you know whatever you you, you want to however you want to classify Classify, do they want to get called out as being unfair to their employees by requiring them to arbitrate disputes? right? And for some for some businesses, that's a legitimate consideration.
0: Right. And there's a couple of, I think, significant phenomenon or phenomena, excuse me, that are going on right now uh, in the marketplace that employers have to keep in mind, especially if they are larger, perhaps even publicly traded companies that that might get media attention one is I think we are seeing an increased um, increased union activity and although you know we lawyers know at least and probably all of HR professionals know as well arbitration is oftentimes a feature of collective bargaining agreements <laughs> but you know these types of of, um, uh, of, of risk management techniques like arbitration can oftentimes be turned on an employer to, to as as evidence to employees as to whether they should they should consider um organizing and trying to bring in a union so that's one thing i think employers have to be on the watch out for obviously um, esg environmental social and and, and governance um, initiatives are um, all over the news these days um, there's a lot of activity in that area and arbitration is one thing that a lot of more progressive-minded investors are looking at and they're concerned about in terms of how um, employers are interacting with um, with their employees so it has to be more than just a risk management and a litigation strategy consideration, but it also has to be a value judgment at the end of the day as to whether this is where your business wants to, wants to align itself and, and what reaction might you get from your, your workforce or frankly your investors
1: right and that's not to buy into the concept that arbitration agreements are evil right right it's 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 the percent it's the reality the the movement the perception more than more than the reality right it's it's you know how how is it going to affect you because some segment of the population believes that arbitration agreements don't put the parties on an equal footing somehow.
0: I, I think there's a fair amount of demonization of arbitration out there that is based on a notion, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a superficially appealing notion that the employer is picking their own judge in these cases and that they're buying decisions. And that is not, <laughs> Generally, yeah. how any it's not how any arbitration that I've been involved in it works, and it's not how most arbitration agreements work. Generally, right. most arbitration yeah. agreements
1: don't say you need to arbitrate this in front of Joe, you know, Joe Smith the arbitrator. Right. It's, we get, we're going to arbitrate it in front of this forum, and that forum has rules for the parties to agree on selection of an arbitrator, or for the forum itself, if you can't agree, to pick it, pick right. the arbitrator for you. Right. right. Um, the arbitrators so, are
0: the arbitrators are often neutral because they've either been select they've selected in one of the methods that you've described and they are very concerned about appearing to be fair because this is their business (laughs) they know that if they're not fair then they're going to lose they're going to lose future clientele
1: yeah half of the bar is not going to use them anymore right but they they think that they're pro-employer the plaintiff's bar is not going to agree to select them and vice versa. So so what are the pros for of the, for employers to consider with respect to arbitration agreements? What we discussed at the beginning, class action waivers, right? If you feel that you're, you know, that you're concerned about being sued in a massive class action or class actions or collective action, um, it could be a benefit to have an arbitration agreement because it, as of now, protects you from those type of those type of proceedings. Um, Cost is an issue, right? The cost could be, it could actually be a pro or a con depending on the circumstances, right? Clearly, arbitration, the arbitrator has to be paid. More often than not, the arbitrator is being paid by the employer and 100% by the employer. um, So it can be more expensive. Of course, it could be a single plaintiff case where you're paying for the arbitrator can still be a heck of a lot less expensive than defending a class action.
0: Well, that that's without a doubt true. I think, uh, and from from the wage and hour standpoint, um, the question is, of course, um, you know, you're not just adopting an arbitration uh, program for your wage and hour. Although I suppose you could if you wanted to, but very likely you're 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 adopting one that's going to be for all employment claims, and you know, most employers are going to want to have the broadest possible arbitration clause that they can get. Right, and so you're also going to have your wrongful termination, um, you know, sexual harassment, well, maybe not sexual harassment because of the new federal law, but, but other types of, of discrimination or retaliation claims, whistleblower type claims if they're, unless there's some sort of agency jurisdiction, those types of claims are gonna end up in, um, in arbitration as well. And so oftentimes I think businesses have to look at like, what's our litigation portfolio look like? And then you know, take all those cases and put you know maybe consider putting a fifty or seventy five thousand dollar price tag on each one of those cases because that might be what your arbitration program is going to cost you.
1: Yeah, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so so what else? So we have jury avoidance, right? You're you're putting these these cases in front of an arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators in some cases, but not in front of a jury, which oftentimes you know, a jury is, looks more like the plaintiff and has sympathies leaning towards the plaintiff employee more so than, than the employer. Right? Yeah, it, it, I,
0: I have, this, is, this is one that I, candidly, Jeff, I, I have mixed feelings about. A lot of employers can look at a good case and they can look at an, an employee that maybe has a, a weak position or maybe they come off as, as, as um, unsympathetic for one reason or another, and feel like, hey, I could go and win that case with a jury. And I think the concern that I have um, with arbitration, and I know a lot of us have this concern, and it, 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 this is the flip side or the reverse of the, of the, of the runaway jury coin, is the right. baby-splitting baby arbitrator. An arbitrator who wants to go right to the middle of the case um, to, you know, candidly to avoid, you know, f- Either side feeling that they didn't get a fair shake in the arbitration.
1: It's one of the things that we haven't really spent a lot of time on. I don't think today, so far, which is the fact that an arbitrator does not necessarily have to follow the black letter law. Right. Right. Um, it's it's you know, their awards generally are not appealable. Um, so an arbitrator can make a decision that they feel is equitable, in most jurisdictions. Um, they can make a decision that they feel is equitable. That might not necessarily be the correct decision under a, a strict reading of the law based on facts presented.
0: Now, that's that I, that that's exactly right. And that again brings in the other thing. You when you when you agree to arbitration, you're agreeing to a binding proceeding. And that that decision that the arbitrator comes to that that decision that feels fair to the arbitrator. You're stuck with you've got no court of appeal unless you know sometimes there may be some some statutory ground where you can say the arbitrator um didn't do their job in some respect that you might be able to go into a to take into court to get a, an arbitration award thrown out but those are very very slender branches and and very that relief is very very rare most of the right. time an arbitration award is going to be final and it may not deliver the same measure of justice that um, that employers are looking for, and that they might be able to find in court.
1: Agreed, agreed. So that so that that can be a risk for employers. If, I mean, it's a risk for either side, right? Um, with either side who thinks that they have the much better case, right? In front of an arbitrator, might not get what they think they're entitled to.
0: Right. Right. Now, and again, you know, it's certainly these are these are pros and cons. And I think it's a it's an individual decision for each business as to what makes sense for that business. Um, The baby splitting arbitrator may not be as big of a threat as a potential, you know, eight or nine figure jury (laughs) jury verdict with punitive damages and all the bad PR that comes with, you know, the public potential publicity. Of a big right. jury trial, you might put those and say, you know, I'd rather take. I'll, I'll go. I'll go with the, the the arbitrator that might not give me, you know, full full result, and I'll take that risk instead of the 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 big um, disparity between the total defense verdict and the and the runaway uh, plaintiff verdict. Um, the other thing we haven't really talked about, um, Jeff, is di- is discovery in arbitration versus discovery in court, and the the relative advantages of, of litigating from a cost standpoint or a business standpoint in arbitration. As arbitrators have so much power, oftentimes, sometimes, they're willing to limit the number of depositions, limit the number of discovery requests that can deliver cost savings for employers as well as reduce the disruption of the business. Um, because I only have to appear for three depositions instead of 10 or 12, like might happen in court. Um, it's fewer people that are getting dragged into, um, in, into the case and away from their day-to-day. Um, that doesn't always happen in arbitration, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had arbitrations where we had just as many depositions and just as deep a discovery dive as we would have had in court, and I've had the arbitrations where the, the arbitrator said, hey, this is supposed to be a more, more efficient Speedier forum, you know. We're not going to allow all these tangential sort of dives into discovery and, and taking depositions of peripheral witnesses and that kind of thing. Um, but but it generally, I think I would view that as a pro for employers because again, one of the one of the tactics of plaintiffs, right, is to make the case very expensive to defend by asking for you know, 300 depositions on a case where you probably only need two. Um, and, and the fact that disco- the, the right to discovery is not as expansive in arbitration as it might be in federal or state court, I think is, is a good thing in that sense.
0: I, I, I will say this, in large part, can depend on the, the arbitration clause or the agreement itself. And what, if anything, the agreement says about the rules that will apply to the discovery right. proceeding? One thing that I often advise clients to do when they're creating an arbitration agreement is to adopt the federal rules of civil procedure as the procedural rules for the arbitration. Why? Because I'm in California and the state rules are, you know, very expansive and um, provide for far more nearly unlimited (laughs) discovery um, prior to trial. And many arbitrators in California, if the clause doesn't specify the rules, will default to the state rules of civil procedure and then plaintiffs are off to the races where not only are they getting all the discovery they would have in court, but for every discovery dispute that comes up in the case, and plaintiff's lawyers will sometimes try to engineer discovery disputes because they know you're you the employer are paying for the arbitrator's time so um, it really i think makes sense to be proactive about that in designing the arbitration program to say okay these are the discovery rules and we understand what courts are likely to enforce here in california you have to provide quote unquote minimal discovery, but it's really like what would be fair in this type of case. Um, the federal rules are always gonna pass that test, but they are far more reasonable than the state rules.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I, I think that's a that's a good practice point for, for employers or attorneys that work in this area, which is you have, you know, an arbitration agreement can and an often case should explain exactly how the you know procedurally how it's going to work, what type of discovery they're entitled to, what rules that apply, exactly.
0: So, what should employers do then, Jeff?
1: Consult an attorney. Isn't that always, <laughs> isn't that, isn't that always the answer?
0: I mean, um, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I think I think that's right. But but you know, it is. It's going to be a a company specific business decision ultimately as to whether to have arbitration or not and it needs to account for for these factors we've discussed now and and maybe some others that 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 might apply to the individual business so jeff um we're gonna wrap up today with a a pretty short state roundup um it's really just one topic which is that we've got some minimum wage increases that are on the horizon um, that maybe are not catching as much news because they're they're happening by operation of law, um, as most people are aware. In <laughs> in twenty twenty two, we have had um, staggering increases in in inflation over the course of the year. It's it's one of the the biggest um, economic stressors that's going on in the country right now. A number of state legislatures. Um, have enacted minimum wage uh, laws that are now required to adjust to inflation. And the increase in inflation in 2022 is triggering some of those laws. For example, here in California, um, where our minimum wage has been gradually increasing every year for the past five years, uh, there's about to be another increase in 2023 by 50 cents to $15.50 an hour. Um, still needs to be finally approved by the governor, uh, but that's ex- that ex- approval is expected to happen. Um, keep an eye out for similar increases in other states, such as Minnesota and Colorado, which also have their minimum wage uh, that is required to be adjusted for inflation. We thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support. If you have any questions or comments regarding our podcast, please email us at podcasts at acreman.com. Again, that's podcasts at acreman.com. We welcome your input or we may answer one of your questions on an upcoming episode.